His skin was dark brown, almost mocha-colored, and his face had been carved by genes and character into the face of a Nigerian king. Because he was a religious man and a member of the Rastafarian sect, he was bearded and wore his hair in long, matted, leonine locks called dreadlocks, and in profile he did, indeed, resemble a dark male lion which was as he desired it. Terran's greatest gift, however, his most remarkable beauty, was his voice and the language it carried. He owned a deep, resonating baritone that came directly from his chest, and his exotic blend of Jamaican English, country patois, and Rastafarian neologism, a poem in any man's mouth, in his became a song, a chanting, rolling mahogany and bird-flight song. Against his, my own voice came to sound like the random banging of oil cans, tinny, empty, erratic, and my language as flat and uninteresting as a sheet-metal duct. The comparison inevitably silenced me, and my silence usually brought Terran forward, as he would say, into speech. He told me of his childhood in Port Antonio, where the banana boats of United Fruit were loaded, his youth in the ghettos of Kingston, where whole large families lived in refrigerator cartons and abandoned Japanese cars, his years in the back streets of Montego Bay, where he had hustled as a middleman between the ganja growers in the hills and the dealers in the bay, and for the last seven years his life among his ascendants, the Maroons of Yam Kapong, where he himself had become a ganja grower. He told me also of his religion and the experience of his conversion when he came to know I, and the marvelous changes it had wrought in his interior and exterior lives, how it had merged them, made them one holy vessel, like the conversion experience of an early Christian Gnostic. His political views, too, he described to me, and they were literally that, views, for he, like all true Rastafarians, was a visionary and believed in prophecy, specifically those of Marcus Garvey and the apocalyptic books of the Christian Bible. We both mistrusted the current Jamaican government, a corrupt, incompetent bunch of ambitious men and women, most of them educated in England, where they had learned to long for the power and wealth of a ruling class and to mouth the socialist rhetoric of the dispossessed masses. But while Terran saw every evidence of their corruption and incompetence as another welcome sign of the fire to come, I saw it merely as another depressing episode in the history of the new world. Evil confirmed and deepened Terran's belief in good. All it did for me was confirm and deepen my pessimism. The differences between us, it seemed to me, were so radical and thoroughgoing, the vocabulary and syntax of our respective lives so incomprehensible to the other, that what ordinarily should have repelled us in actuality attracted us, drew us together, so that we were like a pair of magnets clamped together, opposite pole to opposite pole. 
A consequence of this, or so I believed, was that neither of us took the other's descriptions of reality as revealing any reality except that of the teller himself. I believed that we looked into each other but not through each other to the world beyond. Almost the way lovers do, each man used the other to learn only about himself. We were utterly opaque surfaces, I thought, but as a mirror is opaque. When we sat out on my terrace in the evenings, watching the sun fall behind the lush green hills, smoking ganja, and talking with one another about our beliefs, I perceived only Taron Musgrave, and nothing of the world his beliefs had sprung from. This, I thought, had been a deliberate decision on my part, a decision not to translate his words not to research him, as it were.